So like many schools across the country, students at Stony Brook Middle School in Indianapolis, shout out, they're not allowed to wear hats in the classroom. But a few weeks ago, one student refused to take off his cap. I don't know if you saw this story. And so the teacher asked several times for the young man to, to take off his hat, and he refused. So teacher says, hey, take off the cap. Student says, not going to do it. Okay, no, but seriously, take off the hat. No, I'm not taking off my hat. And so after a few exchanges, the teacher sent him to the principal's office. And if you look at the, the handbook, the student handbook for Stony Brook Middle School, you'll find that uh, the punishment for being out of dress code is in-school suspension or being sent home. It's a really straightforward rule. There's not really two ways to look at it. No hats in the classroom. Simple, period. Compliance should be simple. And a failure to comply results in proportionate justice. If you don't want to follow the rules, you can't be in the school. Now I want you, as, as we begin this morning, to put yourselves in the role of the principal this morning. Put yourselves in, in his shoes. So here's a student who's refusing to do a really simple task. He's interrupted the classroom already. Right, The teachers had to break from the lesson to, to tell the student to take off the, the cap. Now, now the student's in your office and you've got a lot of things to do. Uh, to run a school, the least of which is instructing students to take hats on or off. Now the student's sitting there and this insubordinate kid is, is, is taking up your precious time over something as silly as a hat. So what would you do in this situation? See, on one hand, you can't let it slide, right? There's a mob of students out there. You let that go and... The dress code is sure is gone. Every kid will make their own modifications to the dress code. And the, the handbook already has laid out for you a straightforward path to deal with this situation. So what would you do? How would you enact justice? So here's what Jason Smith, the principal, did. He started with a question. He asked the student, well, why? Why won't you take off your hat? And something about the way the principal asked the question showed that he cared, and the student began to open up. He said that he had recently got a haircut, and he didn't like how it came out. See, the student wasn't being insubordinate. He didn't want to be difficult, but the student didn't want to be embarrassed. And I don't know if you can put yourself back into that teenage world with all of the hormones and all of the, the peer pressure, a bad haircut can be really embarrassing. And so the principal took out his phone and he showed the student pictures of his own son whose hair he regularly cuts. You see, this principal had been doing fades since the days of high school for members on his basketball team. And so he asked the student, Hey, would you let me fix your line? Would you let me touch up that fade and get you cleaned up nice? And the student said, yeah, you could do that. And so the principal called the parents, made sure that that was okay with them. And that's exactly what he did. So instead of sending the student home, 
The principal went home, grabbed his clippers, and fixed the boy's haircut right there in the office. See, that morning, the principal didn't see this kid as an interruption. He didn't see the kid as the problem. He saw the kid as a human with needs. And he sought to creatively and winsomely find a solution that both upheld the principle of the law and maintained the dignity of the person. And that is a very hard thing to do. It requires nuance, it requires thoughtfulness, it requires wisdom. And so this morning as we're wrapping up our series in Justice for All, we're asking the question, how do we find justice? See, on one hand, the story of this principle that I just shared uh, with the principal and the student, it's, it's not as complicated as some of the issues that we've been talking about. Right? It's not like solving the problem of abortion and racism and poverty and how to protect the vulnerable. But on the other hand, there is a lesson to be learned with how the principal interacted in the situation. To do so with compassion, to do so with patience, with nuance, with creativity and wisdom. To find a solution that upheld both the principal and the person. What would it look like if we employed those kinds of characteristics as we sought justice? What would it look like if we looked for justice or we engaged in conversations with the kind of patience and compassion and creativity that this principal had with one of his students? And that's the direction we're headed this morning. And we'll look at this in two main movements. First, we're going to look at what it means to pursue present justice. We're going to see that we are invited. I hope you felt that as we've gone through this sermon series. That we are invited and called to participate in the work of doing justice. As an expression and an outworking of our faith. And then we're going to finish our time, secondly, by resting in future justice. Because no matter how much we pursue... No matter all of the creativity and the nuance, sometimes we're going to find that justice is evasive. That no matter how hard we try, justice escapes us. And not every story has a happy ending like this haircutting principle. Sometimes we'll pursue justice and much is left to be desired. And we're going to ask, what, when that happens, what can we do? And we can rest knowing that in the end, all scores will be settled by God. So let's start in Amos 5 to pursue present justice. Now one of the hard realities of doing a sermon series like we've been, where we're in a bunch of different passages, is that it's easy to lose sight of the context of what's going on. As a church, we haven't studied Amos before, and so as we uh, jump into Amos 5, I want to set the context for you so that you understand what Amos is saying. Amos um, was not a cookie maker. He wasn't famous for that. Before that, he was a prophet to Israel. And he uh, was a prophet in Israel from about 780 to 745 BC. Now, this time marker is important because something significant is going to happen in 722 BC. You know how for uh, the United States of America, September 11th is, is a very uh, known date 
right? It's something that has been seared into the consciousness of our lives. We don't even um, have to say anything around it. I can say September 11th, and everyone in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. Well, the year 722 for Israel was there September 11th. It's when the, the Assyrians came in and conquered them. It's when their nation fell, okay? And so this, the, the once uh, a unified nation of Israel was divided about, about 200 years prior in 930. And there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And in 722, this northern, uh, the, the Assyrians come down and they obliterate the northern kingdom. Okay? So they're gone. But there is this southern kingdom of Judah still remaining. Now at this time, this is still about, uh, you know, 50 or so years before this 722. And, 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 and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are experiencing an unprecedented time of wealth and prosperity. This would be like their golden age. Everything is going well for them. In fact, they haven't experienced a, a time of prosperity like this since the days of King Solomon about 180 years prior. They had gone through some, some bad times before that, but now the economy is booming there's no wars happening right now. There's peace and prosperity. And these are the good old days. However, we can look from the, 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 the halls of history and realize they're only a couple of decades from ruin. Because in 722, Assyria is going to come and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And it won't be long after that before the southern kingdom is conquered as well. But because they're in this golden age, they're oblivious to the coming danger. And what happens is, 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 and we do the very same thing. When things are going well, we assume God is pleased with us, right? Because we assume that when good things are happening to us, it's because God is blessing us. And when bad things happen to us, it's because God is cursing us. And that's actually not always the case. They assumed their wealth and prosperity were unmistakable signs of the blessing of God. They assumed they must be living rightly and God was pleased with how they're living and that's why they were experiencing blessing. Now it's into this mindset that the prophet Amos enters in. And if you read through the whole book of Amos, you're going to see that God regularly condemns their wealth and prosperity because it was uh, 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 built on the backs of the poor. See, the reason why they're experiencing so much prosperity is not because of the blessing of God, but because they have exploited the poor and they've built a lot of this prosperity on their backs. And the rich and the powerful were systematically oppressing the poor and the helpless. So instead of using their power to help the powerless, they were using their power to suppress them. And Amos is going to let them know that the Lord is not pleased. All the while, you're going to find over and over in the book of Amos that they were religious on the outside. So they kept the feasts, they held solemn assemblies, they were a prayerful people, they offered the right sacrifices, they even sang holy songs to the Lord. So if you were just looking in from the outside, you would say, man, this is a really religious group of people. They rightly uh, worship God. They're experiencing blessings. So, so everything must be going well. You could say that they were rightly aligned in their care and concern for God. 
but we're going to find out they were misaligned in their care and concern for people. And Amos calls them out for it. So here's a couple of charges that he has against the people of God. Amos 5, 10 through 11. They, he's speaking about generally the people of God. They hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. What Amos is saying is as a whole, there were people who hated truth. They hated when someone would try to bring correction and reform. They were trampling on the poor, squeezing them for taxes of grain. They afflicted the righteous. Favor was given to the highest bidder and the needy were turned away. And if you remember in our sermon on, on poverty, there's so much in the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, so many laws that dictate and govern how to actually help the poor. And they had given up on that. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that God's concern for the poor and the vulnerable and needy are all over the pages of Scripture. God is concerned with justice and it reflects his heart for humanity and he expects his people to also have the same heart. He goes on to say in Amos 5, 18 through 24, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Now when you come in scripture to that phrase, the day of the Lord, that's a very particular phrase. It's Bible speak for judgment day. This is the day that is coming at the end of this age when God brings his justice. It's the day when the wrath of God that is being stored up right now See, God in his patience holds it back. But there is coming a day when it will be unleashed. And God's wrath is against sin and evil. And there's coming a day when it will flow. It's that day when King Jesus comes again. Not like a vulnerable baby like he did in his first advent. But when he comes as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the word picture that Amos uses to describe the day of the Lord is alarming. Do you hear how he described it? He said it's like being chased by a lion or meeting a bear. I don't know about you, but on my list of things I'd like to do today, those two aren't on them. I'd like to not meet a bear or a lion today. He describes it like leaning against a wall for rest, but only to be bitten by a snake. He says it's darkness. The day of the Lord is darkness, not light. There's gloom and no brightness. Why? Because judgment is coming. And the people are, are, are asking for the day of the Lord. When will the day of the Lord come? And they're, they're talking about it as if it's a joyous thing. And friends, it should be a sobering thing. People of God have desired the day of the Lord. Why? 
because they think that God's judgment is coming only for his enemies. And what that shows is a complete lack of self-awareness. That the very things that God would be coming for judgment for their enemies, that God would be coming to judge them as well. Their status as the people of God does not exempt them from righteous and just living. This can easily happen. When hearts become calloused, when eyes become blind to see your own sin. They've they've failed to see that they are perpetrators of injustice. But they might say, well, what, what do you mean? Perpetrators of injustice? We've been so religious. We've made worshiping God a priority. Right? They've been doing all the feasts. They've been doing all the sacrifices. Well, what does God say to that? Look at verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. This is coming from the mouth of God. I hate your feast. I take no delight in them. Stop singing to me. Why does he say that? Well, they've kept the religious activities, the feasts and the assemblies and the gatherings and the the sacrifices. They've sang their songs. They've listened to sermons. But what's the problem? Their hearts have not been moved. Their actions reveal that they would rather the activity of religion without the change it's supposed to produce. So what he's saying is your sacrifices are meaningless because they're not coming from a good heart. They're not coming from a heart that actually wants to change. You're just going through the motions and because your hearts aren't in it, because you're blind to your sin, it's just noise to me. It's just noise. So what's the prophet's admonition? What does he tell them to do? Does he tell them bring more sacrifices? Does he tell them um, have more gatherings? More religiosity? No. Here is the solution the prophet offers. Look at verse 14 and 15. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have said. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Joseph. And then look at verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You know, that was Dr. King's favorite verse to quote. In a study on Amos called A Cry for Justice, John McFadden explains this verse like this. He says, let justice run through a society unimpeded by avarice 
or selfishness or cruelty. Let it roll on without hindrance like a wave of the sea. Let it roll on unintermittently all the year round, whatever may be the political weather. Let it roll on like a perennial stream, which even in the fiercest heat of summer never dries up. See, we can dam up the waters and the flowing streams of justice with our religiosity. And Amos is saying, let it roll. Let it come down. Be agents of justice. The prophet Amos was saying, as most of Hebrew prophets were saying, that what God wants from us is a life of faith that produces justice and right living rather than empty religiosity. He's not saying that sacrifice and gathering together is unimportant, but he is saying it's, it's meaningless if it's not backed by a life that shows the kind of change that it's supposed to produce. In other words, you can't just do church. You can't just do religiosity and ignore the injustices in our society. Because when that happens, we've, allowed, uh, we've not allowed the gospel to go past our head and our hearts into our hands. And God cares about all of it. We can't just be educated on the gospel. We can't just be, um, no, uh, have good theology. It has to make its way from our heads into our, house, uh, into our hearts and work out into our hands. Now we've said this before in our series, but it's worth saying again. I'm not saying that you have got to be involved in every single issue of injustice. Nobody has the time or resources for that. That's not what God is saying. Besides, doing that is a recipe to be spread too thin and not really make a difference. But what often happens is that we look at how much is out there and all the things going on and we say, well, there's so much to do, so I can't do anything. And that's a wrong way of looking at it as well. None of us is exempt from prayerfully spending time asking the Lord, Lord, what are you leading me to do? How have you gifted me? How have you resourced me? And where are you leading me to get involved, to help others, to pursue present justice? And again, we've said it before, but we have to repeat it again. Pursuing justice, doing the work of justice does not earn salvation. Salvation cannot be earned. You know why? Because it's a gift. And by very, the very definition of a gift, you can't earn a gift. It's, it's just uh, salvation is the free gift by the grace of God. And that matters to get that right because if you do it, uh, the minute uh, uh, this, this Saturday we're talking about this as we've looked into the book of Galatians. Because if you have the wrong motivations, motivations as you go out and do this work, if you're doing it to earn salvation, think about it. You're going to do it with selfish motives. You're going to be looking at people not as human beings, but as objects so that you can gain something. Salvation. You're just there to benefit you. But if you've been freed by the grace of God, here's what happens. It sets your heart free to say, I have nothing to earn here. This is all a gift of God. In fact, God has been so gracious to me that my cup is overflowing 
with the grace and generosity of God. And I've got so much of it that I'm freed up to give to you. So I'm not looking at you as a means to my salvation because that's already secured in heaven. I am here simply to be an agent of reconciliation. I'm here as an ambassador to show the kind of love and generosity of God. Now think about those two different motivations and how that changes how you go about the work of justice. So how do we do it? How do we do justice? How do we respond to matters of injustice with compassion and creativity and wisdom? The first is this. Pray fervently. We've said this, I think, in every single sermon. Not because we're not uncreative, but because we are a prayerless people. We simply do not pray. I believe that God has gifted And made each of us unique. And in God's providence and wisdom, he will use all of us in different ways to bring about his good purpose. And prayer connects us to the Lord where we can ask him where he wants us to go. Where we can serve. And when we begin prayers like that, Lord, where do you want me to go? Then at some point in that prayer, we stop and we pause and we listen. We listen for his leaning. We listen for his direction. And not only do we want to pray before we go, we want to pray as we go so that our ministry efforts are covered in prayer so that we're ministering from a place of Godward power and focus. And wherever there's selfish motivation still lurking about in our heart, prayer helps us with the help of God to align our hearts with him so that our motivations and our mission is fueled by the gospel. If we are going to serve in ways that make a difference, we have to do so praying fervently. The second is this, learn continually. Pastor Kevin and I in our office have been talking to each other. Um, You know, we'll debrief after each sermon and, and as we're writing them. And each one of these topics has revealed a need for both of us to learn more about the issues of racism, abortion, poverty, and the vulnerable. We've merely scratched the surface. Each one of these issues is complex in their causes And each one needs a lot more wisdom and understanding and nuance to know how we can actually be helpful and bring about uh, justice in these matters of injustice. And as a place to begin learning, we've been collecting resources and we've made a page on our website for each one of the issues we've covered. It's a starting point and a place for you to go. So if you say, Pastor, how can I um, keep learning? We've got a whole website with links and books and articles and audio and ways to get involved so that you can start putting these things into practice. Because one of the great tragedies of spending six weeks talking about these matters of justice is that we hear some uh, you know, good sermons and then we would do nothing nothing about them. We have next steps and things for you to do so that we can be a people of justice. We'll send out a link this week, um, tomorrow, that has the link to that, web, uh, to that webpage so that you can begin prayerfully learning about each one and get involved. And as the Lord leads you in a particular path, invest time into learning so that our help goes beyond good intentions. 
often when we come uneducated, we've got all this good passion and intentions, but because we don't know the issue like we should, we end up doing more harm than helping. So my hope is that these books and resources were uh, uh, leading you to, to look at what help you go in in an informed way. And third, participate tangibly. Pastor Tim Keller in his book, Center Church, offers a very helpful grid to think through our uh, practical participation. So here's a grid as you think about how you can get involved. The first is relief. If you're taking notes, write that down. Relief. Here's what he means by that. Relief is giving direct aid to meet physical, material, and social needs. He writes, Common ways of providing relief are such things as temporary shelters for the homeless, food and clothing services, uh, services for people in need, medical services, and crisis counseling. A form of relief is direct advocacy in which people in need are given active assistance to receive legal aid, find housing, and gain other kinds of support. So relief is seeing immediate needs and asking How can I meet this immediate need right now? And this should be something that's happening all the time. So both as a church, as an organization, when we hear about needs, we want to respond. We set aside money in our budget every year so that we can say yes to needs as we meet them. And as individuals, we should be doing the same thing as we seek to be generous and help meet needs around us. So this is simple. If you find someone that's hungry, buy them a meal. If you see someone who uh, doesn't have shelter for the night, find help, shelter for them. This is seeing a need and asking, how can I meet this need right now? The first is relief. The second is development. Now this is helping someone beyond immediate needs so that a person or a community becomes self-sufficient. Again, Tim Keller writes, development for an individual can include education, job creation, and training. But development for a neighborhood or community means reinvesting social and financial capital into a social system, housing development, and home ownership, as well as other capital investments. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying beyond relief, we seek to develop somebody. So it looks past immediate needs and asks, how can I help this person or this community in the long term? This is, this is more than a, a, a short or simple solution. This is where we have to get creative and ask, how can I invest my time and resources to see someone lifted out of poverty or crisis so that they can become a thriving and functioning member of society? This is more than just a simple quick fix meal. This is asking, how did this person get into this situation? And how can I help put them on a path that leads them out of it? It's going to take intentionality. It's not a quick fix, but it is the long game of restoration. And in this ministry, both individuals and the church as an organization can help see people grow. And then the third step that Pastor Keller gives, which I think is really helpful, is reform. Reform looks to change social conditions and structures that kind of aggravate or keep these problems ongoing. So this is in the legal realm, the political realm. This is looking at larger social structures. 
See, we believe that people are sinful, that sin has impacted every single one of us. And because people create systems, what happens? Their sin tendencies tend to be um, actuated into the way that we create structures. And whether it's intentional or unintentional, those sinful structures can hurt people and stunt thriving and flourishing. And one of my great hopes as a church is that believers, you in this room, me in this room, will become informed and shaped and fueled by the gospel. And then we would go into organizations and schools and associations, even politics, bringing our distinctively Christian worldview to bear on policies and procedures as it relates to matters of injustice. Now, it's in this arena, people often ask me as a pastor, what is your church doing uh, in this realm, in this larger category of reform? And it's interesting because the church doesn't write policy. We do not create legislation. Um, Last I checked, Congress does not email me and ask for my opinion on what we're supposed to do. See, the church is not a political organization. The church is not a lobby group. And so this is not an area where the church as an organization, as a 501c3, is going to be directly involved. However, the church is also an organization, but it's also a people, right? Made up of a lot of individuals. And the hope of the church is, is that as we equip the saints, as we equip her people, that they would go out into the world with that gospel understanding, with that distinctly Christian worldview, and bring it to bear in these organizations. Imagine what happens when a person is thoroughly convinced that all human beings are made in the image of God. Imagine what happens when a person is compelled by the ethics of Jesus and to treat others as image bearers. Imagine what happens when the motivation for helping to serve humanity is from a place of an overflow of their gratitude uh, because of all that God has done for them. Imagine what happens when a person is anchored by the hope that in the end God will bring justice and that their efforts aren't in vain. Imagine when that person is going into our school systems to educate our children. Imagine what happens when that person is running for office. Imagine when that person is, 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 is running for a, uh, a, a local city um, councilor position. Imagine when that person goes into uh, uh, social work. Imagine what happens when that kind of person who's fueled by the gospel seeks to bring about social reform and good. That person is going to weave into those organizations their distinctly Christian worldview. And I'm going to tell you, history tells us that that is a way more powerful thing than the church posting on our website that we're for this candidate or that candidate. You know, that's how the world was revolutionized. That's how, that's how Christianity began to thrive and flourish. Everyday, ordinary Christians, guess what? Just started being Christians. They started loving and serving people, and it took the Roman Empire by storm. In fact, the emperor Justinian, at this point there was no such thing as charity, said, the Christians take care of their people and ours 
better than we do. And it took over the empire like wildfire. What happens is so many times, individual Christians want their church to take a a stance on something, to post something, as if posting on social media is going to bring about the reform the world needs. Instead of being thoroughly convicted by, shaped by the gospel, and then going out into the world as the hands and feet of Christ. That is a true revolution. And that is how ordinary, everyday Christians will bring change to our world. That's how we uh, practically as we're praying for God's kingdom and his ethics and his justice as they are in heaven to come here on earth, when we pray that prayer, it is a prayer for us to get involved. So as we are pursuing the work of justice, let's do so as a people fueled by prayer. Let's be fervent in prayer. Let's be a people who are humble and teachable and continue to learn And by God's grace, let's get involved. Now with the rest of the time we have left, just a few moments, I want us to consider how do we rest in future justice when we can't seem to find it. Look with me at Psalm 10. Psalm 10 says this, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To the helpless, to you the helpless commits himself, and you have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. What you see here is the psalmist praying and asking God to remember the afflicted. He talks about how the prideful, uh, wicked deny God and mock him by saying that God will not call things to an account. And then in his prayer, he begins to rehearse what he knows to be true about God. That God does, in fact, see wickedness and injustice. And God doesn't just see it because he's omniscient and all-knowing. Nothing escapes his judgment, but he sees it because he will take matters of injustice into his hand and that's why the helpless can trust in the Lord. That's why God is known as the helper of the fatherless and that's why the psalmist prays and asks that God would bring the full weight of his justice and wrath on perpetrators of of injustice and wickedness. Now why is this an important piece to uh, understanding pursuing justice? Because every one of us knows that there will be times when uh, we pursue justice and we simply come up short. There will be times when justice seems to escape us. There will be times when uh, you fight the good fight of fighting for justice for others and your efforts will feel like they are in vain. There will be times when our justice system has done everything it can do, but full restoration is simply not possible in this life friends we live in a broken world and things don't always come out the way we want and some chapters of our lives do not have a happy ending and when that happens we have to find our rest in the hands of the lord who sees every wrong and is committed to making 
uh, it right in his ways according to his timeline. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. See, Paul is warning against this tendency that we might have when we don't find justice to say, well, I'll take matters into my own hands. Now remember, Paul's not saying don't pursue justice. He says don't pursue vengeance. And there's a difference between those things. See, Paul's not against justice. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, Paul uses the Roman justice system in his own legal uh, 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 injustice. Vengeance is when we take matters into our own hands because we don't trust that the Lord will ever hold those matters of injustice accountable. But Paul is saying when justice fails, you can always rest and trust that the Lord will repay every wrong. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. What is he saying? No one escapes judgment No one because of their status and wealth and privilege gets a pass. God cannot be bought or bribed. He will repay evil for their wrongs. And at the end of human history, here's what we find in Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book of opened, which is the book of life. Don't miss this. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The apostle John is given a glimpse into the end of time. And in the end, everyone, great and small, from the most important and influential to the least, to the somebodies and the nobodies, every single person in the world will come face to face with their maker and give an account for what they have done. Every wrong done in darkness, every injustice that seems to escape justice will be brought to light at the throne of God. Apostle John says the books are going to be opened and God will bring judgment. Why can we rest when justice seems like it can't be found? Because in the end, God is just and he will ensure that justice is executed. Now listen, that doesn't mean that current pain just goes away. It doesn't mean that you resign yourself to be a victim. It doesn't mean that you don't fight and don't pursue justice. It simply means that when it can't be found, as you process that pain, as you pursue justice, you do so with Revelation 20 in mind. That you know when I come up short, When it can't be found, I know that God is just and every wrong will be righted. You can trust the Lord in that. Now there's one more final piece to resting in God's justice. I hope throughout this series you felt some of the tension 
that at times maybe in your life you've been the victim of injustice, but also at times, if we're honest, we've been perpetrators of injustice. Because that's the reality of sin. It's not just that we're hurt, but that we hurt others. Sometimes we're the ones who experience injustice, and sometimes we're the ones who cause it. And think about it. If God's justice is coming for all wrongdoers, and if God's wrath is against all sin and evil, then it begs the question, how will you and I escape that judgment? How can we be the ones whose names are written in the book of life? And to answer that question, our last passage, we turn to Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine, for, in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, Paul makes the same point I just did, that every one of us are sinners. Every one of us on some level have sinned against God and against fellow image bearers. And for that, we are guilty and deserving of God's judgment. And the biggest problem that all of us have to figure out in life is, how can I escape the wrath of God? How can my sins be atoned for? How will God punish my sin without destroying me? And in Romans 3, Paul answers that question, that God put forth Jesus as a propitiation for your sin. Now, propitiation, I'm guessing none of you use that word this week. But don't get hung up on a big word. Propitiation simply means wrath-satisfying sacrifice. A wrath-satisfying sacrifice. Remember, God's wrath is his opposition to sin and evil. It is not a divine temper tantrum. It's not divine rage. It's his settled opposition to sin and evil. And what Paul tells us is astounding. God's wrath against you for your sins and mine can be satisfied in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus died as the atoning, wrath-satisfying sacrifice, and he did so in your place for your sins. That's why you can have pardon when you place your faith in Christ. And so what this allows God to do is to be true to his very nature and punish sin And also be true to his very nature to extend grace. And this is exactly what the cross is about. The cross is not simply a story about a man in the wrong place at the wrong time. The cross is the climax of a multi-thousand year rescue plan to deal with sin and evil. So on the cross, every sin is judged before the throne of God. And for those who reject Christ, they will receive their just punishment for sin but for everyone who receives Christ when their turn comes up for judgment imagine that scene at the end of history that we just looked at that white throne of judgment when your number is called and you stand before the throne of God if your faith is in Jesus you know what happens in that moment Jesus stands up he walks over stands right next to you And he says, Father, 
I stood in his place. And all the wrath and judgment they deserved fell on me instead. That's how you escape judgment. That's how you walk into the pearly gates. That he received what we deserved. And that is the only way you and I can rest in the justice of God. Is to know that the justice fell on him instead of you. Let's pray.